From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Britain likes to think of itself as an island nation but often forgets that it is a nation made up of not one, but thousands of islands. The mainland now has a centrifugal pull, but the outlying islands have played a vitally important role in history. They were not remote in the days before trains. They were more easily accessible than the most inland of cities. And if seen from an insular perspective, the history of Britain looks decidedly different. Islands have been the sites of rebellion and heterodoxy, radicalism and lawlessness, brutal massacre and colonisation, experimentation and spectacle. They are places that reveal the underbelly of history to us. They are microcosms of the main. My guest today, Alice Albinia, has re-centred Britain's islands in her beautiful and latest book, The Britannias, An Island Quest. In it, she roams from the Neolithic from Anglesey Druids, all the way through to the present-day Thames estuary. But I took the opportunity to ask her about some of her central chapters, on islands that should be more central to our understanding of the 16th and 17th centuries. Alice Albinia, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. We're going to be talking about your work, The Britannias, which is a study of Britain's islands and covers everything from the Neolithic through to the present day, with a particular sensitivity to the stories of women in history. But today we're going to be zeroing, as is our want, on the 16th and 17th centuries. So hopefully our conversation will just whet people's appetites to know more about the centuries either side. But I wondered if we could start with thinking about Lindisfarne. You say that Henry VIII changed the outward spiritual expression of the church forever, and that at Lindisfarne it's possible to see his death blow to the island. Can you talk more about that? I think you go to Lindisfarne and the vision you see of that island is of the priory, and then Henry VIII's castle up on the rock. Lindisfarne had for centuries been a site of warfare and acquisition and battle between monarchs. But it was with Henry VIII's Reformation that the decline which had already set into that community finally found its end point. Of course, what you're talking about is not just the community itself, but the pilgrimage to the community, which had been going on for centuries. And a whole way of life, a whole community a spirituality that didn't find... I mean, I feel like that form of spirituality is finally finding its expression nowadays, but for centuries thereafter, there was no pilgrimage. And I came to this idea of pilgrimage as something other than Christian from having written and travelled and worked in Pakistan. 
where pilgrimage is a really essential part of community, spiritual, hedonistic life. It does so many things in one. It provides a holiday, it provides a meeting place, it provides a form of spiritual expression, it provides revenue <laughs> for people selling things at these shrines of saints. And so that was very much the texture of my first book, which is about the Indus River, the texture of my travels through Sindh in particular, the province in southern Pakistan, was really from one pilgrimage spot to another. And so I knew what we were missing when I got to what this land and these people were missing out on when I got to these stories about Lindisfarne and what happened to Lindisfarne and what happened to pilgrimage all over the British Isles with the Reformation, what we were missing. And it must have been shocking in so many ways to see the edifice crumble and to see the buildings go, the way of life go, the people go. I mean, it's something really dramatic visually in the landscape. It's such an aesthetic island, Lindisfarne, partly because of its ruins, which obviously were very beautiful in the centuries hereafter for people to come and contemplate. You, you know, you approach it slowly. I don't know if you've been to Lindisfarne, but you approach it slowly over the sands. And there it is, the different accretions of ruin. And it's interesting how there was obviously the precursor with the Vikings. But as I say in the book, the Vikings take the blame. There's a letter from some Norwegian bishop of Nidaros. But of course, it was Henry VIII who did it. And it's interesting. It's one of those instances where here we see very visually on an island, a story that is actually true of the mainland as a whole. But in this island setting, it speaks very powerfully, I suppose, to that story that is otherwise something we pass over. Oh, the dissolution of monasteries. It's just a little phrase. And we don't think about the great enormity of the change. What I'm always struck by is the enormity of the change and the paucity of the time. You know, it's done so very quickly and must have been like turning their world upside down. It was very quick, very organised, very efficient. And obviously, you know, Lindisfarne had been in decline and the statistics are there about the number of monks who'd, and they'd all retreated to the warming house and they weren't buying in the saffron that they'd brought in before. But it was still a community in relation with, say, Durham and with the villages around. And yes, it was very, very quick and it must have felt like the apocalypse, I suppose. This sense of the islands telling the full story or telling, in some cases, a sort of underbelly of the story comes out a lot in your book. And I wonder if we can look to another example, which I think does this well, which is to look at Rathlin. And could you tell me about what happened on Rathlin in 1569 and why it happened there? So Rathlin is an island in the Irish Sea, and it's between Ireland and Scotland and the Gaelic, Gaelic-speaking family clans of Ireland and Scotland had used it for a long time as a kind of base. It's in a very rough bit of sea, but it's a good kind of, it's like a kind of commuting, I suppose, like a service station or something. It therefore became a place that the English needed to take in order to try and control Ulster. And there was one massacre after another by English monarchs of the people living on Rathlin. It was kind of the vanguard of the kind of colonisation that happens from that point onwards across the world. And for me, very forcefully, the story of Rathlin is a kind of precursor of what happens in, well, the island that I link it to is Bermuda, but it could be any of these other islands that become colonised by English and then British imperial 
zest for domination of other places and other cultures and other religions and other peoples. I think it just sort of speaks very much to the sense of it as being a place that permits atrocity in some ways. In 1569, there was a, a wedding held on Rathlin, which was bringing together these two clans, Catholic clans, an Irish clan and a Scottish clan, the O'Neills of Donegal and the Campbells of Argyle and the Macdonalds of both Irish Antrim and Scottish Isla. It's a dynastic union with the Scottish mercenaries and Irish who are hosting everybody. And it's a moment of celebration of these two families, these two cultures and the ease of that union on Rathlin, which is the in-between point. And the fact that the Scots see Ulster as an extension of their own place in the world. And then you get this movement in by the English who have begun to look at Ireland and begun to plan their plantation and begun to think about how to conquer this island beyond their own islands. Ireland has had this particular quality as, as a place that has, hasn't suffered the conquests of earlier conquerors that have kind of swept through the Britannias. So it doesn't really get touched by Rome in the same way. And it's probably the place where the Druid leadership flee to from Anglesey. And you see that later when it, efforts are made to kind of record the folklore of different parts of the British Isles. The ancient folklore is more intact in Ireland because there haven't been these incursions by other cultures. It reminded me a bit of the way that India somehow managed to keep in touch with its ancient literatures and folklore and mythology, you know, the way that Sanskrit has passed down orally. And I suppose there must have been something similar in Ireland with the Bardic schools and with this form of oral transmission of really, really ancient stories, which then get tumbled into the Christianity that comes into the islands. So Ireland has been this place that has largely managed to keep very ancient mythologies and histories and ways of life intact. And then the English arrive and colonise it. And it's a very brutal moment in the history of Ireland and of England, I suppose. It is a brutal thing to be a coloniser. Yes, you write that in Ireland we get a religiously tinged conquest, and I'm quoting you here, that flourished particularly well in particularly nefarious ways on the country's borders. And I wonder why you think that's the case, why it is that these edges, sort of the verges, are so open to that kind of conquest? Well, islands in particular, they can be easy to take and they can be easy to hold in good ways and bad ways. Nowadays, if you look at what people are doing on small islands, for example, getting rid of the rat population or, or introducing sea eagles, you can trace that back in much more dangerous and, and bloody ways with what people have done to each other. And I suppose islands also, as, I, as we talked about with Lindisfarne, because you can kind of see some of these smaller islands, you can see them in one glance. And so they're iconic. And it's true with other islands. They become sacred or they become forts. So they will later, islands have a ring with Martello Towers or in the Channel Islands, it's Hitler becoming obsessed with these islands and pouring concrete in and defending them. And I think it's something visual in a way. It's because you can see it and walk around it and make your mark on it so fast. Also, in a time in the 16th century of people moving fast by boat, islands are necessary. You navigate by the islands as the Vikings did and as the earlier peoples did too. 
it's a way of getting around. You need to go from one bit of land to another before it's possible just to sail straight across the open sea. So islands are, are strategic and they're defence and they're iconic and they're spiritual. And there are a lot of different things, obviously, all at once. And with Rafflin, this lay-by island, as it were, we do seem to have this extraordinary history of violence, the purposeless massacres, it seems, of the Tudor queens, plural, and then in the 17th century as a place of horror when Charles I garrisoned troops there. I don't know if people will know these stories, so it's probably worth giving some sense of what happened. And then, again, back to this question of why there? I'm right that it's a kind of exploratory, colonising gesture. And I think there is probably something in that. It's a small place. It's therefore a peripheral place. It's a, therefore in the mind of a mainland monarch or a mainland ruler, an insignificant place. And it's pretty far away. And when you read the kind of letters that go back and forth between Ireland and, and the court, these people who are out in Ireland feel like they're suffering. Deborah, Walter Deborah suffers in his in the mission that he's been set by the Queen. And it comes through the plaintiveness and the kind of agony of what he's doing comes through in these letters. And you can also see that it's easy to, it's a matter of scale, it's easy to do things there that you wouldn't be able to do nearer the centre of power. And you can see that being scaled up, obviously, later in imperial endeavours much further afield. It's symbolic of England managing to interfere in the quite tightly woven culture that existed between the clans of Western Scotland and Northeast Ireland. Again, it's strategic. It's attacking something that's useful to your enemy. An island is defended by the sea until the point that it tips. The tides are fierce around Rathlin. It feels like you're on a fort. As an attacking army, you manage to arrive and you've crossed through those waters. You've arrived on the island. And then once you're on the island, and, it's, and it really is a small island, and there's nowhere to go then for the people who are trying to defend themselves. So the stakes are very high, and you see that with the massacres of Mary and then again with Elizabeth and then, as you say, with Charles I. And again, and with the clans fighting each other also. You're safe until you're not safe. You mentioned Walter Devereux, the Earl of Essex's very unpleasant experience to, as he sees it on the island of Ireland. And another person who's there and has experience as a colonist is Edmund Spencer. And you suggest that it's both his experience as a colonist and his exposure to Irish folklore that inspire his fairy queen, how so? Tell me about that. So the Fairy Queen is, is very watery. And when I came across the passages of these women living in their island world, it became clear to me that there's something that Spencer is picking up on, which is ancient and is reiterated through the centuries in the mythology and literature and culture of the British Isles, which is this strain of thinking about women who managed to escape mainland, mainstream life and find their own space and their own sanctity on islands, specifically on islands away from the mainland. And I think there's something that Spencer picks up on, possibly from currents within English mythology and literature, but also stories of mermaids, stories of Ireland and its islands as a place of otherness, but also the pressures of living as a coloniser within a hostile population. All those different things seem to come through in the fairy queen in, in ways that conflict with each other. There's a really interesting way in which these forces are very strong but militate against each other, and I think that's what makes it such an interesting poem. There's various 
different lake women in the Fairy Queen. And for me, it reminded me of the stories of Albina from an earlier iteration of literature and folklore. But there's a moment when the men come to the island of Acrasia, who lives in this kind of really beautifully described love nest, the bower of bliss, which is described as melodious and a paradise and joyous and angelical. But she's too free a woman to be left and they trap her in a net as if they're witch hunters or as if she's a mermaid. And the words of the poem are, their bliss he turned to balefulness, their groves he felled, their gardens did deface, their arbours spoil, their cabinets suppress, their banquet houses burn, their buildings race, and of the fairest late, now made the foulest place. And for me, that's a coloniser describing what he's doing, what he's part of within Ireland in the name of Elizabeth I. And it's also interesting that Spencer is working for a woman, the Queen, and the difficulties that must have caused him and other men who worked for Elizabeth I. It's not a straightforward thing to work for a woman, and you see that in The Fairy Queen in terms of the kind of theme of female leadership. It's instability, it's noxiousness maybe, it's power. There is always a recognition of the power, but it's something that is being grappled with, I suppose. Huge, isn't it? Dealing not just with monarchy, but with female monarchy. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You mentioned the discovery of Bermuda, which is now a British overseas territory, and what it meant for early English colonialism. And you suggest that we see Bermuda in Shakespeare's play The Tempest. What do you think this can tell us about this moment in history? I think it's amazing. I mean, Shakespeare, my God, what a source of knowledge and poetry and thought that those plays and that man were. But it's almost just such a perfect example of how Shakespeare seemed to write in his use, his very zeitgeisty use of the Bermudas, because of course they are a chain of islands but have been singularised, a bit like the Britannias becoming Britain. So the story of Bermuda at the time that Shakespeare is writing The Tempest is that just two years before the play was performed, a ship called the Sea Venture, which was carrying people and supplies to Virginia, which was a struggling colony, hit some reefs 400 miles short of America. The ship was completely wrecked, but everybody on board survived. And they then were stuck in these islands, which turned out to be an absolute oasis of abundance. There didn't seem to have been anybody living there, any humans living there. And as a result, the birds and the mammals and the amphibians and the fish were incredibly easy to trap. And these 
English people survived by having stumbled upon this oasis of abundance. And they built themselves two new ships, the Patience and the Deliverance. And when they eventually got to Jamestown, they found the colony had almost died out. So they then became the saviours of this colony. And Shakespeare seems to have read the account that was written in 1610 by two survivors, Sylvester Jourdain and William Strachey, who described how the island was full of noises, these strange guttural noises that which they thought were devils, but soon found to be seabirds calling to each other. Some of the company obviously felt that they were never going to be rescued, because why would they be rescued? They were in the middle of the sea. And so they drank themselves to oblivion and gave themselves up as if lost. They did get away and they did come back to write these accounts. Ariel mentions the Bermuths and the descriptions then merges with other colonial adventures, probably in North America itself with encounters with Native Americans. Because as I say, there wasn't anybody on Bermuda at the time. You get this kind of merging through Shakespeare's genius mind into a play, The Tempest, that it isn't set in Bermuda. It isn't set anywhere in particular. It just becomes the colonial island, which stands for all these islands that have been colonised at the time and go on to be colonised in this brilliant way that the encounter between colonisers and, and the indigenous and the land and, and in particular, something that I noticed, which it hadn't occurred to me all the many times I'd seen The Tempest until I began writing this book, which of course is that Prospero is taking the island from Caliban's mother, who he calls a witch. And there again, you have this kind of chilling echo of the story that you see in The Fairy Queen and that we've seen all the way through. I trace it all the way back to the Neolithic, but at least since Roman report of their conquest of the Britannias, of islands which are associated with women and associated with female independence, and then become the story flips, as it often does in kind of patriarchal narrative of these independent women become witches. And of course, Sycorax is a witch, and she's Caliban's mother is a witch, and she's described as a witch, one so strong that could control the moon, make flows and ebbs. And that story of a witch carries on in British history, and the, there are really quite recent stories of women on islands in Shetland and in different parts of the Hebrides who, for example, sell winds to sailors, which is something that also happens in Shakespeare in Macbeth. The witches are, are controlling the winds and therefore controlling the weather and therefore controlling the climate and controlling what you can do on the sea and what fish you can catch also how quickly you can get around. Also, in particular, the weather. I think this control of the weather, of women controlling the weather in this era of man-made climate change, it's really potent to think about how ancient these stories are associated with women and and their freedom and their independence and their, their sense. And I suppose this is what one of the things that happens with the various witch trials. And in particular, it's the female connection, I think, to the land, to plants, to the waves, to the winds, that becomes something that's threatening and has to be suppressed. To understand these stories, I think, as they're told often by men, for example, Shakespeare and by Spencer, and to see what that means, to see, for me, seeing the whole history that has kind of informed and and built into these stories. And when you see a witch who has her island taken away and and has it colonised by Prospero, you remember where how that witch got there and how that story got there and how these stories can turn on themselves and become stories of liberation and independence. But just at this particular moment that Shakespeare is penning the story or Spencer is penning his poem, 
it's a story of colonisation. You mentioned there the Isles of Scotland, and I think perhaps before we consider this as an English story, by what I mean as a story of English colonisation, we ought to talk also about James VI, later James VI and First's attitudes to the Isles. What did he make of them? He thought they were wild and uncouth places, full of witches. He was following his forebears in seeing the periphery of very much being a mainland monarch and seeing the periphery as a dangerous place that was uncontrollable and needed to be controlled. And again, you have a kind of parallel with women and independence and islands and women as also a kind of unstable, as you see in the Fairy Queen, women as a site of instability. But yes, James VI thought the islands needed bringing into line. And it was a long process, this the taking away of the culture of the islands and the, the families of the highlands, taking away their language, taking away their, their musical instruments, taking away their form of storytelling, the bards. And for James VI, who had an obsession with witches and witchcraft, the islands were the place where these things were still practised. And he may have been right. I mean, it may have been that that culture I was describing of something that goes back to more ancient ways of doing medicine or thinking about mythology, which you have in Ireland, and you probably do have in the islands much later than you do in mainland England, mainland Scotland. In terms of his reach and his control as a king, he's right that the islands are, are places of rebellion and places of where different ways have been kept intact longer than the mainland. And that's one of the qualities of islands is that they're further away and they're their own place. And there are forms that are preserved there much, much longer than in the mainland. As you see, for example, with Sheila Giggs, I think it's no coincidence that these medieval sculptures of erotic or anyway explicit sculptures of naked women are probably all over the British Isles. But the places that they're preserved often is islands, the Isle of Wight, Iona, the Isle of Egg. It's these islands are able to keep these cultural forms that are later condemned intact. You say that it was in the Civil War that islands at last took centre stage in mainland English politics. What part did the Isles of Scilly and Jersey and Lundy have to play? For both the Charleses, the islands became really central to their lives. The prince fled through... England, and he was encouraged to, so the Civil War has its really interesting and protracted form in the southwest, and he had to flee England, and the islands were the place that he was able to go, which was still part of the realm, but were a safe haven until they were again no longer safe. So he goes to the Isles of Scilly, and then eventually to the Channel Islands, and then eventually to France. But the islands become, for his father, equally important. He's flees to and is then imprisoned on the Isle of Wight. And there is a moment where Charles I describes the way in which his son is, is living beyond England in this kind of watery exile. He describes it unboying him, and he uses this nautical metaphor because it's true that of the naval battles and the, the importance of, of what happens out at sea how the mutiny of the navy and the attacks that are able to come in from outside become part of the strategy that, I suppose, create this king and eventually the restoration. And what's extraordinary about this is one of those things that reminds one of the past is not dead. In fact, it isn't even past, William Faulkner, because 
you talk in the book about John Grenville's little kingdom in the name of the deposed royal family. And this still has significance. It still has importance in terms of the history of the islands and more generally. Particularly in Scilly, it was the people who live on Scilly and aren't nobles or landed people nevertheless use the civil war as a kind of watershed moment. It's a bit like the Norman conquest, a lot of power and land changes hands. And I mean, it is amazing that you can still trace some families back to the Norman conquest. But yes, the civil war, kind of it was like a dye running through those islands. And people tends to be, if you say how long have you lived on the island, people tend to go back as far as the civil war. And silly changes, it goes between the parliamentarians and between the royalists. And it becomes very emblematic of that fight. And think again of the Channel Islands in the Second World War. Of Hitler puts all this effort into colonising them because of how emblematic they are. If you think of Britain not as a, a mainland, but a collection of islands, it's a way of attacking. They become something far greater than what they actually represent, which is a really small bit of land. It's amazing that the Dutch, they only remember to declare peace with Scilly in 1986. So piracy is another thing that becomes very interesting with Scilly. Who is a pirate and who has letters mark when you've got the same nation fighting each other in the Civil War? I'm interested in the way that we see islands appearing in royalist stagecraft, both actually before the turmoil of the Civil War and in the kind of disappointment of the Restoration. And I'm particularly interested in this theme that you draw out in your book about the fear of islands ruled by women, but also to an extent the celebration of it in this. Why do you think we see this as a theme in the plays that the royalists are putting on? Of the instability of female leadership. Yes, the instability of female re- leadership, but also to an extent sometimes a celebration of female leadership, but on islands specifically. Well, I think it's, it is a very ancient and potent theme. There are Roman authors who talk about Scilly. One of the reasons that Scilly is so interesting beyond the history of the Civil War is because it is possibly it's a candidate for the island of Senna, which could also be the Ile de Seine off the coast of Brittany. But in here you have an island that was said to have been inhabited by nine priestesses or prophetesses who controlled the weather. And this theme goes all the way down through British history of islands that are ruled by women. And you see it, for example, in the, just to pluck another example, in the stories of Arthur, who has his mainland court and the stories we're brought up with are the stories of King Arthur and his round table, but his whole power is enabled by his association with the ladies of the lake, provide him with his sword and provide him with his prowess and it's them who take him off at the end of his life for his healing. And I think the stories are there because there has to be an outlet, I suppose. If you have a very strong patriarchal culture, it's impossible for that to function without some counterpoint, without some counterculture, without some... I mean, humans have to be able to imagine some other way of being and it seems that there probably was a real sense in which islands were able to provide a different way of living and a different way of being for some people. And also a symbolic, emblematic way of an alternative way of being. And the the fact that patriarchal systems and histories suppress women means that the place where you're having a rebellion against that, whether it's emotionally, mentally, aesthetically or in reality, it's going to be women who are at the vanguard and therefore 
there is an examination, I think, in mainstream literary culture of what this means. And you see it in The Tempest and you see it in The Fairy Queen and you see it in the plays of before and after the Civil War and other forms as well. It's something that's potent and troubling and I suppose needs examination. And that's what, consciously or not, probably unconsciously, was happening when different literary figures took up this trope again and again to see what it meant and to see where it was going and to see what you lose when you take away that power from women. What do you get when you give it back or when it's taken back or when they reclaim it for themselves? Finally then, you write this startling phrase that we are still in the 16th century mindset of discovery, colonisation and exploitation. This is one of those moments when you're reading a book and you have to put it down for a second just to sort of ponder what you've just read. It seems to me to summarise the 16th century so well. Why do you think we're still possessed by it? Oh, I wish we could live differently from how we do, but it seems there is a very strong part of our culture that teaches us to conquer and teaches us to exploit and teaches us to extract the seabed now maybe the oceans is the new territory mining we're still there we're definitely still there and one of the startling things i began to touch on in the research for the britannias was coming across these peoples who had naturally chosen to live differently i remember reading an essay by an archaeologist who'd worked for years and years with the neolithic and had been doing detailed observations of chambered cairns and stone circles, these monumental efforts that humans went to from Neolithic times onwards to impress themselves in the landscape and to make the landscape work for them. And maybe there was a harmonious way of communicating between humans and nature and the landscape. But with these huge edifices, there was no getting away from the fact that humans were making their mark. And this archaeologist went to... I think it was Finland and encountered the Sami culture where there were no traces of the worship places, to give an example, of early humans because these early humans, they didn't need to make a worship place. A rock face was a chapel and a hill was a cathedral and a, a river was a palace. And when one is struck again by modern day modernities, it is reassuring and tragic to remember that it hasn't always been like that. Of course, these ways are less easy to trace, by definition leave no mark, but it's really important to see them and to realise that even if the force and the exploitation is the thing that we see now all around us, there is another way of living. Alice Albinia, thank you so much for joining me to talk about these ideas. And your book is beautiful and it is called The Britannias, An Island Quest. So to those listening, that's the book that you need to pick up for your next read. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at not just Tudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.